I thought it would be good for all of us to take this time um, that we have together and to look at the experience of faith. So I'll be giving some talks on faith in the evening. But the most we had some confidence or some faith that there's something to do here as opposed to what we might do at home. And it's probably also clear to, clear to us that that a lot of things get done in the world because of confidence and faith that aren't necessarily what we would consider wholesome or good. So faith isn't enough, but it's um, even though it's not enough to free up the heart, it is it is necessary. It's not like a human being can make any meaningful change or wake up or free up the heart without this force or this power. I remember a while back, I think it was on PBS, uh, there was a show called Faith. It might have been something that my win, my partner, um, got in her research on Islam. So it might have been just a video that someone sent her. But it was called Faith, and it was just a documentary of Islam. And of course, I think from my limited knowledge of history, we could have substituted any number of organized religions that really rely heavily on faith, and driven by faith. And, and a lot of what the documentary was talking about is how quickly, how powerfully the world changed and how quickly it changed through faith, this group of people, this ever-expanding group of people's faith. I'm sure everybody here has come up against somebody else's faith. <laughs> and we can feel quite uh, sometimes overwhelmed and disturbed by a person's confidence or faith in what they think is right. So the key with our, um, our practice is not to follow faith only. It's actually quite easy for some of us, people who have a lot of devotional energy or a lot of confidence, it's actually relatively easy for us to create something to believe in. We can whip up a kind of spiritual frenzy or a idealistic notion that we then become entranced with. I remember as a little boy, I still don't know how much of this is true or how much of it was just some dream or something made up, but I have this memory of seeing this white bird in front of my house 
when I was, I don't know, five or so, maybe six. And uh, I had this idea that this was some kind of spiritual revelation. I felt that way. And uh, I remember, and again, I don't remember if this is actually true or not, but I remember like... Uh, like trying to tell other people about this bird, this beautiful white bird, and that somehow I have no idea now, and I don't even think I had much of an idea then what it meant, except that it was special, <laughs> this white bird, this special white bird that meant something special. And you know how we get on the bandwagon about these things, including Buddhism, including meditation practice. And we just make it hard for people to be around us, usually. That's sort of the sum total of that. There was, we've uh, read recently One Dharma, uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, and our uh, Dharma book circle. Some of you are in this Dharma book circle that meets on Tuesday mornings. And they quote this uh, guy, W.H. Murray, who wrote uh, The Scottish Himalayan Expedition. And he talks about commitment. He says, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth. The ignorance which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself, the providence moves to. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. The whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would have come this come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. And this is from Goethe. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And again, remember, this is completely neutral, meaning that it's been used for harm probably as often, maybe more often, than it's been used for good. I was reading in Time Magazine, they had an article about Mother Teresa, and I, I know, know a little bit about her history, and some of you probably know too, just as a young, relatively young nun teaching high school to wealthy Indian girls, and uh, she just had this, heard these voices from, she thought, God, telling her to go to, to Calcutta to serve the poorest of the poor and to just do it. And so she did. It's kind of a, a bit of an outrageous thing for somebody to do. And then there's people like Hitler who, you know, thought something else, had a different kind of boldness, and had a lot of power because of the confidence and how magnetic that confidence is. So in Buddhism, and probably any useful path, spiritual path, 
there's a balance between wisdom and faith. So, in this sense, faith is this kind of boldness, this confidence, this commitment, this power that comes with commitment. And wisdom, fundamentally, in, the, in its deepest sense, wisdom is uh, not taking things personally. So it kind of prevents things like World War II, which is some kind of attachment or identification with self, whether it's an individual self or <clears throat> the fatherland or <clears throat> some sense of um, self. You know, it might feel like uh, we don't want to mess with faith, especially, you know, in the West. We have a lot of evidence uh, about how faith has gone bad. And it, it can appear to us that the safest route is just not to play around with faith. We don't need faith. We'll just be a skeptic or be a, you know, who knows what. We'll just be a cynic. But that doesn't work either. There's a well-known monk, Nyanapanika Tara. He's died. He's dead now. He lived for a long time in Sri Lanka. He was, uh, I think he was German originally. And then he went to Sri Lanka and ordained back in the mid-1900s and was a monk for many decades, did a lot of translation, well-known teacher. And in talking about the refuges um, in faith, he said, he said there are three important questions. And the first question is, is this world of ours really such a place of danger and misery that there is need for taking refuge. Taking refuge is an act of faith, is an act of commitment. We're committing to something, either because we trust it or we don't trust anything else. So the question to ask us, uh, ask ourselves, is do we have need for a refuge in our lives? And I invite all of us to just reflect on that for a few seconds. Do we need a refuge? What, are, what is our life likely to be without a refuge? And by that I mean we can reflect on the, the basic currents that we live with in our society and our culture. And are we content to be swept along with these basic currents? And I'm not, you know, obviously some of the currents are unwholesome, but they're not all unwholesome. And uh, most of us have been somewhat skillful to avoid the really unwholesome currents, but we're still pretty much in the middle of currents sweeping us along. And is that okay for us? There's a very interesting passage in the suttas. One of the 
Buddha's most well-known disciples, lay disciples, was King Pasanadi. And uh, he was, there you know, a lot of little states, city-states at the time of the Buddha in the Ganges plain, in this great river plain. And uh, there were some, some were sort of run by clans, some more sort of traditional monarchies. And King Pasanadi was one of those kings and who became uh, very devoted to the Buddha. And one time, near the end of his life, uh, he went to see the Buddha. He sat down, you know, he paid his respects. And then he said to him, uh, the Buddha asked him, Now where are you coming from, great king, in the middle of, a, of the day? And the king responded, Just now, venerable sir, I have been engaged in those affairs of kingship, typical for kings, who are intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, who are obsessed by greed for central pleasures, who have attained stable control of their country, and who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. And then the Buddha responded, What do you think, great king? Suppose a man would come to you from the east, one who is trustworthy and reliable and would tell you, for sure, great king, you should know this. I'm coming from the east and there I saw a great mountain high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings. Do whatever you think should be done, great king. And then the Buddha goes on and says, and then a second and a third and a fourth man came from the west and from the north and from the south and they said the same thing. And this is what King Pasanadi said, how he would respond to the Buddha's hypothetical situation. If, Venerable Sir, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, the human state being so difficult to obtain, what else should be done but to live by the Dhamma, to live righteously, and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds? And then the Buddha said, I inform you, great king, I announce to you, great king, Aging and death are rolling in on you. When aging and death are rolling in on you, great king, what should be done? And King Pasanadi says the same thing. To live, uh, to live by the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. To live righteously and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds. So this is uh, a reflection. Some of us don't need to reflect very hard to have that sense that there are great mountains walking in on us. It may be aging, but it could be all kinds of things like teenage children, or it could be uh, job insecurity, or it could be troubles in our relationships that are marching in on us that literally feel like they're going to crush us to bits or living in a world that seems really chaotic, where anything could happen any time. So we don't want to recall all of these things in order to get tight. I mean, that's not the point to come to Holy Spirit, a beautiful place with a nice group of people to remember all the things we're frightened about. But we want to remember enough, as Jean suggested, we want to remember enough so that 
we don't just use the weekend, the long weekend, to relax, which is really a wholesome thing to do. So there's nothing wrong with relaxing. It's really important to know how to relax. But we don't want to see... That, that really isn't a very suitable refuge because it doesn't really solve, address any underlying issues in our lives. It's a temporary, a wholesome, but temporary thing to do to relax, to sit by the lake and relax, to have a peaceful meal with quiet people and relax with that, to have a peaceful sleep listening to the crickets instead of the jets and the traffic. So we want to recall whatever it is that's obvious for us that's marching in on us from all sides. Basically, we want to recall our humility that we don't have it all figured out. We don't have safety. We want to understand that and be motivated by that. Motivated to be seekers instead of, uh, (laughs) you know, what's the opposite of a seeker? Someone who thinks they know. I guess a kind of arrogance. And this really points, I think, to the difference between what we might call unskillful faith and skillful faith, is that unskillful faith closes off learning. And it's basically uh, developing, strengthening a belief, a confidence in something as a way of protecting ourselves, And it's usually an external thing, like an idea. An idea of God that we don't really know anything about, for example. Or an idea of the supremacy of my race. Or the idea that my wealth will take care of me. Or my good looks will take care of me. Or my cunning will take care of me. So, and then, and then basically what we do with our, the power of our faith is we don't let anything question, interrupt that confidence, because it's scary. This is what we have faith in. So that, that's one side of faith, or one possibility of faith. Another is faith in a path. And in a Buddhist sense, and, and probably it's true for any real spiritual tradition, spiritual path, faith in a path that involves direct learning. So we are, we're cultivating faith, confidence, that there is a way to use our life that, it, that develops a kind of insight or learning that's fundamentally useful, practical. Practical and useful in the most important sense of the word addresses what really we really want to address in our life, like this issue of safety. As an ego being, the most important thing to us as an ego being is our vulnerability. We, as an ego, we feel vulnerable. Whether we think we're vulnerable or not, we do. And our whole personality is driven by our vulnerability. Physical psychological, existential vulnerability. That's what drives us. 
So what we want to do is we want to look around until we find a path that seems reasonable enough to begin on. And then on that path, step by step, we want to deepen our conviction, our confidence that this path addresses that issue of safety. And so each sort of event, each sit, each retreat, each reflection is actually developing something, a power. And if it isn't developing this power based on our own experience, then it may make sense to back up and look again and, and question the particular path we're on until we find a path that actually works where the result of the path is something deeply useful and practical addressing this issue of safety. And so the next question that Yanapanika asks after he asks, is this world of ours really such a place of danger and misery that there is need for taking refuge? So I'm assuming, for me at least, the answer is yes. I'm assuming that's true for most of us, that we do feel like there is a need for a refuge. And then he asks, does such a refuge actually exist? And we should be honest with ourselves. Do we know? Do we have confidence in a path or in a refuge? Think about how many times we've been maybe misled in our lives. And then, of course, the obvious question is, what is its nature? If there is a path, if there is a refuge, what's its nature? So I suggest for all of us, besides the various ways that we practice returning to the present moment, we can, uh, one way to illuminate the present moment is to reflect on these questions. So here, in the present moment, feeling the body as it is, aware of the mind and the mind states as they are, in this experience of being alive, being present, is there a need for a refuge? And does such a refuge exist? And what is its nature? So, for example, you know, for me, when I sit or just uh, have some freedom from incessant distractions, you know, no news and uh, <clears throat> no real responsibilities like you guys have on this retreat, except for your yogi job, basically, you know, there is a schedule, but the schedule is just for you to use in a way that supports the balance in your mind, that's really what the schedule's for. Nobody's policing the schedule. It's really for you to use or to adapt and adjust in a way that's wholesome and useful. So you have a lot of free time that probably you don't have. And you can use these three questions to illuminate your present moment experience. In this moment, is there a need for a refuge? So what I notice sometimes, and maybe you do too, that even though I have this 
space like people have when they're on retreat. I have that sometimes in my day too. I notice my mind creates problems even when it doesn't need to. You know, worries about things that don't need to be worried about, plans things that don't need to be planned, remembers things that don't need to be remembered, judges things and compares things that don't need to be judged or compared with. Basically, it uh, whips up some self-centered drama, and there's the experience of that drama, which is painful. It's agitating and stressful and tightening, contracting in the heart. I notice this all the time. So, I'm assuming that some of you will notice this, especially as things quiet down. You just see the mind's tendency to create problems for itself. And then, then that can be a very clear, direct recognition that, that this mind needs a refuge. Left to its own devices, or another way of saying that, left to its habit energies, it's just going to stir things up. It's going to dwell or indulge in certain mind states or certain uh, thinking patterns that will create suffering. In other words, the heart will get all bound up and tangled, and it will hurt. And then when we're hurt, we tend to make things hard for other people around us, too. So it's not just that it affects us, but even when we're silent, it can affect people around us. So then when we find ourselves in this predicament, then we can just experiment, like, well, what kind of refuge exists? So most of you have been practicing for a while. You've been given many, many sets of instructions, some of which you'll remember on the retreat. And then you can just check them out, like, is this set of instruction I have received, does it uh, lead to some refuge, to some path that's deeply useful and practical in this moment? Not theoretically, but given that this heart is, is bound up or moving in the direction of being bound up, heavy, or this mind getting agitated, given that, does this refuge support a release of freedom from that movement towards contraction? So right in that moment we can do this. And then if it does work, then we can examine the nature of that refuge. In other words, we can practice being really intimate, really understanding its nature, so that it's more accessible in the future. It's less abstract and more something that's easy to turn the mind toward. The whole idea of a refuge is that it be available. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not really a refuge. I was reading um, from Tanisaro Biku's book, The Wings to Awakening. Really an incredible book. And uh, in one section, he just mentions um, that he thinks historically, from his reading, the Buddha used three means of the, uh, to instill faith in his students. He used sort of the uh, goodness of his character 
So just the purity of his actions, you know, so what people would observe would make them really trust him. And he used psychic powers, <laughs> and he used reason. So we don't get to see the Buddha and the kind of, um, you know, who knows if this is true, but it certainly uh, seems this way from the description, and theoretically I assume it's possible, that he, he had just an impeccable character where he just knew how to be skillful in every moment, no matter the moment that his mind and heart was so nimble that the image that's used, it's like water being poured into a jar. Water just knows how to fill the space of that jar, no matter how strange the jar is. just fills it up. And the idea of enlightenment, of a, a mind that's free of greed and aversion and confusion, that mind or that heart just knows how to be in the moment, knows how to respond appropriately in the moment. So if we were around somebody like that for a while, we'd be probably pretty impressed by their skillfulness. And that might cause us to really trust what they have to say. Or, you know, if he had psychic powers and could do amazing things, that might make us respect them. But of course, in, from a Buddhist point of view, psychic powers doesn't necessarily mean you have a lot of wisdom. His evil cousin, Devadatta, had psychic powers which he used to try to destroy the Buddha um, because he'd get people to respect him because of his psychic powers, and then he'd use their power, like he got a prince. Uh, I think it was King Pasanati's uh, son. Not Pasanati, but I think it was his son, who he got to uh, get put his father in prison and eventually starve him to death. So psychic powers aren't enough, but still, for most ordinary folks like us, we'd be pretty impressed if someone had psychic powers and could do amazing things like read our mind or, you know, change matter or things like that. What we have left, which what is still, I think, pretty much available to us, is we have the reasonableness of the Buddhist teachings. A lot of people don't like the Theravada Buddhist tradition because it's a very conservative tradition. But one of the good things about the Theravada Buddhist tradition that the Common Ground Center comes out of is that they did a good job preserving the teachings of the historic Buddha. I mean, I'm sure things have been thrown in, but there's a lot of, uh, seems like a lot of uh, integrity to how the teachings have been maintained uh, the last 25, 2600 years. And so we read these teachings, even though some of the translations seem a little dated or a little bit funny. You know, especially if you can read a couple of different translations. These teachings speak to our minds now. It doesn't feel like they're dated at all. What he's talking about seems incredibly useful and appropriate. And so this is what we can work with. And so when you're, uh, when you're out there, during the retreat, dealing with your present moments as they arise, understanding that there is need for a refuge, meaning that you can see the tendency to be swept into moments, into experiences that are not pleasant, that are not useful. Then you can reflect on these teachings 
the reasonableness of the teachings and let that notice what happens to the heart. The heart actually gets inspired. There's devotional energy. Like there is something to do with this life. I'm not a helpless victim. There is something to commit to. There is something to do. And I'll be talking about what that what the Buddha teaches and suggests as we go along. But all of you know, I mean, all of you have been, have already received some instructions. And so the basic teaching of the Buddha is that we're misperceiving the way things are. We're not seeing clearly. So the basic instruction that seems so reasonable, easy to have faith in, which is to do what we can to be clear about what's happening right now. And that, and a sort of a corollary to that, that one of the most distorting things is our thoughts about what's going on. So we have to learn to trust an intuitive opening or an intuitive presence as opposed to a intellectual interpretation, a cognitive or a thinking interpretation of what's going on. So as beginners, it means mostly learning to be in the body. First in a real gross sense, like just feeling the butt on the chair or the cushion. But then more and more in a subtle sense, the energetic quality of the body. And we begin to learn to be fluent in just being present with emotions as they exist subtly in the body. So if if we remember nothing else, this whole retreat, when we remember that there is a need for refuge, and the question arises, well, is, do I know of any refuge that might be worthy of investigation, of checking out? And we can remember this basic teaching, which is, don't get confused by the words or interpretation of what's going on. Drop into the subtle experience of the body. Practice relaxing, opening to the body. And then we get a... We, we deepen our understanding of the nature of the refuge. In Buddhism, the refuge is much more about what we don't do than what we do. We're taking refuge, in a sense, in not doing ego-based activities. Or not identifying, from a self-centered point of view, with the activities of our lives. So the way we do that is we we take refuge in awareness We're not stopping anything. We're just taking refuge in awareness. And that undermines the self-centered doing. It doesn't mean there isn't doing. It undermines the identification with the doing. We're taking refuge in the awareness, the one who knows, not in the doer, not in the sense that somebody's doing something, but in the awareness that something's happening, that something's arising, whether it's a thought, whether it's chewing, whether it's getting more food, there's just an awareness. This is how it is now. So I'll leave it here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.